Good day and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson. November is National Homeless Awareness Month and also, importantly, National Homeless Youth Awareness Month. It's an important topic not only nationally, but also right here in Detroit, where the city has launched the Homelessness Strategic Planning Project, a project the city hopes can be a catalyst for improving outcomes for the unhoused in our community. But let's think about what we're talking about. Shelter, safe, secure, and reliable housing. It's a crucial part of any person's ability to survive in our society. And that's why we wanna do our part today on the show to highlight what it looks like here in our community, especially in the realm of youth homelessness, as well as some of the organizations tasked with helping those at risk or without reliable housing. But to start the conversation and just get a general overview of what homelessness looks like nationwide and provide us with a basis to compare and contrast what we see here locally, we're joined by Steve Berg, Chief Policy Officer at the National Alliance to End Homelessness. He specializes in employment, economic development, and housing. Steve, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Nick. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here also because homelessness is something we all hear about, we think about, but, you know, some, it's the interaction with TV, what it looks like there, but that might not necessarily paint the picture. So for you, let's just start with an overview of what homelessness looks like in our country right now. Sure. So at any given time, there's probably half a million people who are either living on the streets or living in various kinds of homeless shelters. And and the, the, the people change a lot. People become homeless. Other people leave homelessness and go into housing. So over the course of a year, there's probably a million and a half people who experience homelessness at some point in time. It it affects everybody you know you you talked about youth and and young people are at great risk of homelessness it's a lot of mothers and fathers and their children it's people with disabilities uh veterans have been have had a rate of homelessness that's higher than the rate for the rest of the population for many years so it's a it's a range of different different people but in in every community there's organizations and groups that are trying to address the problem. Yeah. So if we look at homelessness, you mentioned that vast, stark number of people who go in and out of homelessness. What type of effect does being unhoused for even a limited period of time? What does that have on the outlook of people's lives who go through that experience? Yeah, I think people talk about trauma and there's there's few things that are more traumatic than having an experience of homelessness, losing your housing where, wherever it is, ending up on the streets at risk of all kinds of bad things happening to you. Um, it's a very traumatic experience and people, you know, they, they, they have a hard time living it down. I mean, I talk to people all the time who had an experience of homelessness, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and it's still, it's still with them and mm-hmm. affecting, affecting their ability to relate to the world. In terms of policy solutions, then, because I know that's something that you're focused on when you're dealing with uh, this kind of issue, what have we seen to be some of the things that we can do, some of the policy levers that we can pull in order to help curtail this issue? Yeah, there's there's sort of two things. There's sort of a short-term thing and a long-term thing. The short-term thing is to make sure you've got 
good programs in the community that if people lose their housing and become homeless, help is there to keep them safe and to quickly get them back into housing. But the longer term and the real solution is to 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 make changes in the housing market so that people aren't losing their housing all the time. Um, that means subsidies to help people with low incomes afford rent. That means making if people are in danger of getting evicted, making help available so that that can be stopped and people can be stabilized. Yeah, we're speaking again right now with Steve Berg, the chief policy officer at the National Alliance to End Homelessness, who specializes in employment and economic development and housing. We're going to speak to some folks here in the city who are doing work in the area as well. But we also want to speak with you, especially if you're someone who's had an experience with homelessness, with being unhoused, or someone who's had it affect their family. We want to hear your story also, and you can get involved with the conversation, 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. If you have any questions for Steve as well, you can let us know. And Steve, I do have another question for you because uh, you mentioned uh, the attacking the issue of having access to housing. But uh, one of the issues that I think that we have there is that while uh, nationally in places like California, I know the housing market, it's just very difficult to find a house. Um, In some other locations, affordable housing might be more of the issue in terms of getting housing that actually people can afford. And another struggle that you mentioned was, um, you know, disability, substance abuse, things like that, that can also be challenges with maintaining stable housing that might not necessarily get to a bit like amount of housing, but just access to housing. Are there any policy levers that you have in place for that? Or how would you respond to folks who wonder about that issue? Yeah, I think it's it's it's. Absolutely true that if you have a housing market where there's not enough housing that people can afford, among the people who are going to get left out are people with those kinds of disabilities. And so to to get people like that off the streets and back stabilized, you need help with housing, but you also need help with whatever other kinds of conditions they're dealing with, whether it's mental illness or substance abuse or whether it's a physical disability, um, a, a, a very distressing part of the homeless situation right now is that in in recent years, older people are, are a very fast growing part of the homeless population mm. and um, often need extensive medical care and other kinds of help in order to in order to maintain stable housing. But yeah, those those kind of services are also an important part of any solution to this problem. Yeah. Well, let's talk specifics then. I mean, we have a lot of different cities and local communities that are each trying to tackle the issue. And I'm sure you've seen some of the policies or some of the programs that they've enacted in different spaces. What have you seen that has worked in your study in this area? Yeah, I think when we look at it, cities that have really had some success at making this program better. Uh, I think you see, one, they they have systems in place, like I said, to deal with the short-term issue so that, that people can be kept safe. But then they're also very focused on, we're, we're not going to keep people homeless for a long time. We're going to really focus on getting people back into 
into housing. I mean, Houston, Texas is an example that comes up a lot as a community that's really had that focus for, for a number of years and has really driven the amount of homelessness down by focusing on getting people into housing as quickly as they can, working with landlords, uh, making sure that help is available to people, like I said, help paying the rent, but also other kinds of help dealing with whatever issues they have and and treating like local landlords as as allies in this work and making sure they're they're getting what they need in order to to make the housing available to people who are homeless. Yeah, a collaborative effort as opposed to a combative one as we're speaking with Steve Berg, Chief Policy Officer at the National Alliance to End Homelessness. But we're also speaking right now with Frank in South Lyon. Frank, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi, good morning, Nick. Um, you know, I've been interested in this issue for a long time, and, and I think that um, one of the big underlying factors to this is zone, local zoning ordinances. Um, I used to live in Livonia. And, um, you know, we have a vast swath of uh, industrial, uh, you know, manufacturing between, um, you know, from one end of the city, from Schoolcraft down to Plymouth. But yet there's there's very little housing in there because it's you can't build it. Mm. You know, I mean, it's just not zoned for it. And I think one of the things that people need for affordable housing is to be close to their jobs so they don't have to drive and they don't have to have a car. Uh, you know, I'm out here in Livingston County right now, and I, you know, I just pulled over, to talk to you. I'm, I'm by a plant here. I used to deliver liquid nitrogen here. You know, there's hundreds of jobs here, but, you know, out here there's no affordable housing. There's, you know, no transit or anything. So I think like that zoning is a real critical factor if we could get local, you know, small cities to zone areas where people could have, you know, dense. Uh, rental units they can't be you know this idea of buying houses and stuff like that the american dream people need rental houses because they got to be able to pick up and go if another job a better job comes up frank you raise a series of excellent points there which i appreciate zoning can be an issue i know people have talked about maybe mixed zoning to work with that as we're coming out of the pandemic and uh commercial properties are being less used maybe allowing people to live there would that make them closer to their uh, jobs, also urban sprawl, sprawl out to the suburbs, rural areas, being far from your jobs. So many issues that Frank brings up there. I didn't even hit them all that were great. Uh, Steve, what do you see in terms of zoning and allowing people to build maybe these duplexes, multi-use uh, facilities? What, what kind of responses do you have to some of the ideas Frank's bringing up here? Yeah, this is absolutely one of the most important things going on. It's, as as he says, you know, if there's not enough housing, the response has got to be to build more, to develop more. But there's a lot of communities that just for what for whatever reason aren't really open to that. And they use things like zoning codes to make it hard for people who own property to develop to develop housing on the property. And this is something that I think more and more local officials are starting to look at it's like okay we 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 clearly have a need for housing that's that's not being met and what are what are the obstacles we're putting in the way and when they start looking at that a lot of times the local land use policies or zoning policies are are the first things that got to look got to uh 
kind of fix. Yeah, yeah. Frank, again, in South Lyon, I really appreciate your call and bringing up those important points to this conversation. As we move now to Mike in Detroit. Mike, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Good morning, Nick. Thank you for having me. Happy to have um, you. Go ahead. Cool. Steve, I have a question for you. I uh, run a nonprofit here in Detroit. It's called New Path Villages. And for the last couple of years, we've been attempting to get built um, or to build a tiny home village for transitional housing to get folks who are experiencing homelessness. It's the first step off the streets. We It took a couple of years. We got zoning approval from the city council to do it. And we bought some lots from the Detroit Land Bank. Um, and we're basing our village on villages that I've seen and, and visited in other states. Um, Beloved in Denver, Square One Villages in Eugene, Oregon are a couple of examples. My question for you, Steve, is that have you got any experience with these tiny home villages and what do you think of them? Go ahead, Steve. Well, yeah, we've seen that in places, some of the places you mentioned, other places around the country. And and I think it it. The, the people who are from what we hear from the people who are staying in these is it's good in some places. It's not so good in others. I think it's what what seems to make them the most successful is making sure we, there's not only, you know, good places to stay like the tiny homes can provide that, but also help with moving beyond that and moving into a more permanent living situation, help getting jobs if they need jobs, help connecting with with medical care. So it's that range of services really focused on, you know, what's the next move into permanent housing. That seems to be what makes these programs most effective. Mm -hmm. Mike in Detroit, I really appreciate that perspective. Go ahead. You got one more? Go ahead. Thank you for doing that work, Mike, because I think it's it's everyone who works with homeless people are saints, and I think it's important work. Yeah, I absolutely agree, and and double that sentiment, Mike. Thank you so much for your work. And we are going to speak with Steve a little bit later, some folks here who are helping with those, what we might refer to as wraparound services, services to help people maintain housing here in the city of Detroit. But before I transition to them, I want to give you an opportunity to give us one more word, especially with maybe dispelling something that you wish people knew more about, maybe giving them more information about what you see, the most important point you'd like folks to know before we let you go about homelessness yeah i i think the most important thing people aren't familiar with this issue to know is that nobody wants to be homeless there's too many people sort of make excuses for their community not doing a very good job with this issue by just telling themselves oh people want to be homeless the, I, the number of people who choose that kind of lifestyle is minuscule. Almost everybody you talk to wants desperately to get out of that situation, get back into housing where they can be stably housed, get a job and be able to support themselves, deal with whatever issues they have. That's what people out there want. And it's important to work with them to make sure that kind of help is available. Yeah, we're going to have to end it there, Steve. But again, thank you so much for joining us, Steve Berg, Chief Policy Officer at the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Thanks again for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. 
When we return on the show, as I mentioned, so many organizations doing the hard work to really help folks here on the ground floor in Detroit. We're going to speak with some of those folks, learn more about what homelessness, especially youth homelessness, looks like here in the city, what they're doing to help out, what you can do to help out as well when we return on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin here. And again, getting into the very important topic of youth homelessness here in Detroit. And to do that, it's such a big issue. We brought in a series of folks to discuss the issue and to help us learn a little bit more about what's happening here at a local level. And to do that, I'm joined by a, uh, uh, a cavalcade of wonderful guests, starting off with Shante Hightower, who is the Director of Children's Services at COTS, the Coalition on Temporary Shelter. Shante, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I'm also joined today by Megan Dunn, who is the Executive Director at Detroit-based Covenant House of Michigan. Megan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having us today. And also, I'm joined by Courtney Smith. Courtney Smith is the founder and CEO of the Detroit Phoenix Center. Uh, Courtney, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. All right. So all three of you work in spaces that help out with youth homelessness in Detroit. So let's start off with you, Shante. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do over at COTS and uh, where you are in in terms of helping us tackle this issue. So we're a human service organization that services families. And with families, there comes children and youth. And what we do is we focus primarily on housing, but we operate on a model called Passport to Self-Sufficiency. And in that, there are five domains that we work with our families in. We want them to not only get into housing, but be self-sufficient once they get there. And we take a look at what the family's needs are and what the children's needs are, because that is key in us breaking that cycle of generational poverty. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we heard come up in the discussion a little bit earlier uh, when we were talking to Steve Berg, which is another reason why I'm so glad that we have you guys here who are doing the work at that ground level. Moving over to you, Megan, with uh, Covenant House, are you guys doing similar stuff or where do you attack this issue? I think all of us overlap a little bit, but at Covenant House Michigan for the last 26 years, we're we're based in Detroit. We have a second location in Grand Rapids. We focus on young people between the ages of 18 and 24. Uh, So, and we provide them first with that unconditional love and absolute respect uh, to be able to offer them short-term housing uh, and also transitional living, also with a host of, of programming and wraparound services uh, to Shantae's point, our goal at Covenant House is to end the cycle of homelessness once a young person leaves our campus. So we do everything from you know providing those mental health services, workforce development and training, life skills classes, and, and everything like that to help not just uh, help someone become housed, but also yeah. give them the resources to remain that way. This is something that we're hearing come up a lot again mm-hmm. with uh, what we've been discussing so far. <laughs> the importance not only of attacking the housing portion mm-hmm. specifically, but also attacking uh, the things that make it a little bit more difficult to maintain, even when you get that uh, ability to get into a house, which is why I want to bring you and Courtney also with the Detroit Phoenix Center and give you an opportunity to let everybody know what you guys do. Yes, thank you so much. And I would certainly agree 
agree with Megan and Shantae, our work certainly overlaps at the Detroit Phoenix Center. Um, we are the only drop-in center here um, in the city of Detroit that meets the needs of young people ages 12 to 24 um, who are experiencing housing insecurity. So the work that we do is a little different because we are not a shelter. We don't house young people at our facility, but we have a low barrier model to meet young people right where they are, where they can come in, they can take a shower, they can wash their clothes, they can access a food pantry, after school programming, life skill enrichment, summer employment, and a host of other programming services that not only help to address right the youth homelessness crisis, but break the cycle of poverty. Mm. A key component of our program is our youth board, where we're mobilizing young people who've been imp directly impacted right by the youth homelessness crisis and driving change and policy work within our community. Um, new to our organization this year um, is we're also doing rapid rehousing. So we're um, partnering with um, landlords in our community to be able to house young people um, for up to two years. Yeah. So let's take a look at this from the aspect of uh, you guys are deep in this. So I know, you know, <laughs> cold youth homelessness, but it's something that I don't think a lot of folks necessarily have personal interaction with, mm -hmm. or even if you do in your family, you might not know somebody's going through it. Mm -hmm. One of the things you mentioned here, of course, youth homelessness. Let's start here. A lot of people might say, why don't they just go back home? Or aren't there facilities mm -hmm. that deal with juvenile services, delinquent youth? Aren't there more opportunities for housing for someone who's young? Why is that not the solution in this case? Uh, we'll move over to you, Shantae. So I think that one of the main components of that is that oftentimes we have children who grew up in generational poverty. Mm. So their family may not have the resources or the ability to be able to take them. Then you add those youth that are a part of the LGBTQI community and their families may not accept them but also the resources being out there and readily available to them. So I think that one of the big things is that they may not know that these things exist. Their families may not know, and their families may not know how to support them because they, too, are still experiencing poverty. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that you brought up, I think it was you specifically, Megan, who mentioned when you were talking about youth, you went over the age of 18. You said 18 to 24, mm -hmm. I believe, which when I think about the foster care system, that's mm -hmm. going to end at 18, right? And mm -hmm. then if you're not an adult at 24, there's this six-year gap of what someone's supposed to do in that space. So for you, what does it look like for folks who are in that kind of 18 to 24 range? What does homelessness look like from your personal experience there? Thanks for that, Nick. I mean, I think what we have to really understand is that the perception of homelessness, the face, and I'm putting my little air quotes up, of homelessness has changed significantly. So yes, it may be the person that's standing on the corner with the sign that is a very clear sign of homelessness. But signs of homelessness, especially particularly with young people, um, could be completely different. And so we may be interacting with someone that is experiencing homelessness or is houseless and we don't even know it. It could be the person that is helping you at the restaurant, at the cleaners. Uh, you know, a lot of these you know, young people that we work with are employed, but they don't make the wages um, for them to be able to attain affordable housing. So what we do at Covenant House is, you know, we're providing these young people who you know, ordinarily may have been on a college campus, we're providing them with that overall support. So A, they can heal from whatever traumas that they experienced before coming to our campus. That's the main goal. 
um, and then so we can help stabilize their mental health. And then we can begin having the conversations around how we can help them find housing and not only find housing, but really focusing on them to understand how to live independently, giving them those tools to be successful and to be able to live on their own. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned kind of a little bit college age there, because part of this conversation that I think about makes me think back to when I was in college and leaving college. And I, I know that that's not the same experience that mm-hmm. a lot of the folks we're talking about here are having. But I know it is the experience that a lot of folks who are listening had. And so when I hear of someone who's maybe living couch to couch or my friend who said, Nick, San, Fr- San Francisco is great. Who cares if you can't afford it? Come here. You can stay on my couch. So that (laughs) might be something I'm hearing in my mind when it comes to living from house to house, couch to couch. And that didn't sound that bad, right? That's what people do who are college age when you're trying to set out in Chicago, New York, L.A. You live from couch to couch. Why is that not the framing of what's happening here, Courtney, in this space when people hear about maybe living couch to couch? What's the difference? Um, because it may not be a choice, right? When, when there's a privilege, when you can say, hey, I'm choosing to live this way, when it's not a choice, that's the only option that you have, mm-hmm. right? And and then there's economic downturn um, that we have to consider. There's financial implications that exist. And then also when you're making that choice as a college student to go say, hey, I can go sleep on your couch, it's because you see a path you know, you see a path out of poverty, you see a difference. And a lot of the young people that we're working with, they see those same things, but they don't necessarily have that choice factor contributed to it unless they're provided with those services, unless they're able to get that wraparound support. Again, we're talking about youth homelessness, how it shows up here in Detroit, talking to some of the folks who are really making an impact right there. Uh, And we want to hear some of the stories from you three. I want to hear how you've been out there. You've spoken to the people. We want to hear the stories about what you learn from the youth that are out there so that listeners have a better understanding of it. But we also want to hear from you out there who's listening right now. Do you have a story to share about homelessness, about being unhoused? How does it show up in your life or the lives of friends and family? What questions do you have about how it shows up here in Detroit? What things Would you like clarification on that you might misunderstand? Now's a great opportunity with these wonderful guests to get that insight. We're also going to talk with you all a little bit about National Youth Homeless Awareness Month. I know you got some (laughs) events going on. I promise you we'll get to that. But to start off right now, I want to move it back over uh, to you, Shantae. In terms of your uh, personal interaction with some of the youth who've dealt with this, uh, what's a story or some stories that you've heard out there, a specific story, actually, that you've heard that would highlight this issue? So something that I shared earlier um, with them was talking about um, from the educational component. Oftentimes, a lot of the teachers do not know that these children are homeless. Mm. Um, People don't realize that sleeping from couch to couch may be, you know, their homelessness and they don't identify as being that. So a teacher may not know that. And when these kids have IEPs, uh, the story that I shared is we had a young lady who was at Mumford, which is not far from our shelter. And she was getting suspended every day. And when I went to the school to get to the bottom of it, I found out that at 15 years old, she read at a first grade level. Mm. So when those teachers were asking her to read out loud in class or participate in class, 
that's when you saw those negative behaviors start, which the bullying started, the fighting started, because I was not comfortable sharing that, one, I couldn't read, and two, that I was homeless. So that's one of the big things about being aware and making sure that people know that it's okay to pull somebody to the side. It's okay that you have an advocate on your behalf, but also teaching them to be able to advocate for themselves. And that's one of those things that I've seen that that's when you start getting those youth that are dropping out of school. Like I'm already facing housing insecurity and instability. Now I'm at school and I'm the focus of being teased and being bullied. So I drop out of school. And then again, coming back to those resources, knowing that those resources are there to be supported for them. They don't know. They're not often aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. And to expect someone at that age to know, I mean, that would just be, I wouldn't have known at that age of having those resources. Moving to you, Megan, same question to you, a story that really sticks out in your mind related to this issue. So first, there are so many stories that I think all of us could tell. Um, I'm going to highlight one that just uh, came to me not too long ago. I spoke with this young man last week. Um, he is a Detroit resident, and um, but a student at Michigan State University. Um, got behind, something happened with his financial aid. There was a snafu where he ended up owing the university uh, quite a bit of money. So unfortunately, he wasn't able to attend classes and he lost his housing. He did not have a stable housing situation here at home. And so then started some couch surfing and eventually ended up homeless and was on the street. So he came to Covenant House you know, just, he was a junior, right? So he came to Covenant House and was just kind of looking for a job. And then our advocates and um, and our team started to talk with him, better understood his story. And so now we're stepping in to help, you know, communicate with the university to help get this young man back on track. He's a pre-law major, wants to be an attorney, wants to, you know, lead a life where he can go to San Francisco and other places or hopefully stay in Detroit, right? Right. Um, and so we, that's where a lot of our organizations fill the gap. So there, you know, some of it is generational where, you know, these young people don't have families that they can go to. And so then we become their family, right? We become much more than just advocates or residential advisors, but we step in and say, hey, let us go talk to the university yeah. on your behalf. And now uh, we're very close to getting him re-enrolled and back in housing and he'll be back there in January. Yeah, yeah. So that's, you know, a little bit of a success story, you know, fingers crossed. But the, the, again, the face of homelessness can be that. It could be a college student, right. too, that maybe lost their housing and didn't have a stable situation at home. So we're seeing a variety. You know, we see some kids, you know, from our street outreach team that do live in abandoned homes, that have slept in garbage cans, that have been trafficked. But then we also have stories of some young folks that just, you know, something didn't work out with financial aid and they don't have the support system to help get them back on track. And so that's where our organizations help fill the gap. It is fascinating. I mean, to hear that someone who is in college, which I don't think a lot of us would would think about, you think you got to college, you made it, you're going to be Doug, okay. Mm -hmm. But that's not how that works, no. right? It is a great story. I don't know how I feel about another lawyer coming in here trying <laughs> to take my shine. But you know what? He sounds like he has a good story. So he if we get him story. to pass the bar, that'd mm -hmm. be great also. Courtney, I want to give you an opportunity also to share with us. Yeah, so I think about a mother and the son um, that um, came to, to DPC for support whose house was firebombed. Yeah. Um, oftentimes when people think about um, youth homelessness, we don't think about um, young people experiencing um, housing insecurity with their parents. The mom doing the very best that she could um, to get find housing for her and her
her son, her, her son, a high school student at the time, and was like, hey, we just need some additional support. We need some after school programming, some tutoring. He needs to be around other young people that knows what it's like to be in a housing insecure um, situation. And so we were able to, to get connected with this family and they were able to normalize their lives and from trips to, to Cedar Point, right? To, to movies, to bowling, to essentially the young person receiving wraparound supportive services, graduating from high school, now a freshman, right, at a university and 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 stable, right? Yeah. And the family, um, we were able to to pay for them, right? First month rent and security deposit, connect the family to a home, right, for the holidays. And then also the mom even still to this day, right, says that because of the services that we provided, that we're so human-centered, normalizing the lives, allowing them to have opportunity and space for joy and connection, that their relationships strengthen. So I have to echo that it's not always, there's not one specific face, right, right. to what this situation looks like. And a lot of times these parents are doing the very best that they can. Yeah. You know, it's that help to break this cycle, as you guys have been alluding to and speaking about specifically of someone who, you know, if you came up in a homeless environment, uh, if your parents were homeless, it's going to have an impact on your ability. You're more likely to go down that same road. So being able to intervene, being able to help these folks out out there who are members of our community to break that cycle is so key here. And that's why we're going to continue our conversation with you three ladies, Shante Hightower, Director of Children's Services at COTS, Courtney Smith, Founder and CEO at the Detroit Phoenix Center, as well as Megan Dunn, the Executive Director at Detroit-based Covenant House of Michigan. We're going to discuss the events that are happening for awareness next month, as well as potential solutions and get to the phones when we return on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Nick Austin diving into the topic of youth homelessness, specifically right now and how it shows up here in Detroit as part of National Youth Homeless Awareness Month. Got three great guests to help us out. Shante Hightower, Courtney Smith, as well as... Megan Dunn all helping us out on the conversation, but we want you to help out as well. 313-577-1019 to get involved and get in the conversation just like Jordan in Detroit did. Jordan, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Thank you so much. So I recently moved out, but I, I spent the last year and a half living in a house of hospitality, helping to bring folks in who are experiencing homelessness and housing them. And I wonder what your guests do. Thank you so much, by the way. I mean, the resources are so scarce, it feels like. So it's really amazing to hear from people who are doing this good work. I wonder what the guests think about the city's responsibility for the homelessness crisis in Detroit. Um, it just felt like everyone that we tried to connect our guests to to get them, like, permanently housed was we were working with organizations where it was, like, it was on the goodwill of a nonprofit or an individual or mutual aid networks. And that's all really important. But in terms of like city resources, of city run availability, it just felt so slim. And I wonder, like, what are they doing? You know, what are they doing to help Detroiters 
be well. Um, it's just, it was really frustrating to see the lack of resources available. So I just mm. wonder what they think. Well, yeah, it's a good question. I know that there is a series going on right now, again, a program to look at it, a five-year plan through the city of Detroit, and we'll reach out to them also. But while I have you ladies here, anyone want to jump in and help Jordan out, give some insight into what you've seen in that space? So I was going to mention the five-year plan because we've probably all been a part um, of those early meetings and now participating in several listening sessions. What I appreciate about these listening sessions is that the city has been very intentional about um, inviting people with lived experience. Mm. So it's not a lot of, I mean, it is a lot of us service providers and folks from the city, but there are many, many people that have lived experience that are helping to influence those conversations. So I do appreciate the city's um, leadership on doing that and including those with the lived experience. Uh, I mean, from a funding perspective, I know through um, ARPA funds, the city allocated a certain amount of money for um, to address homelessness. That's what this five-year plan is coming from. Of course, I think we all wish there was more, right? Uh, because the need is more, the cost to do this work um, is increasing significantly with inflation. Uh, so, you know, there's funding that the city um, is helpful with, but of course we wish there was more out there. Now, when you talk about a five-year plan, you know, that can be kind of high level for someone. So when you're on the ground like us doing the work, um, we just have to be reminded that, you know, even though it's a five-year plan and we know that it'll be um, eventually available, that we would love to see some more folks from the city kind of getting in with us on the ground to help, A, see the work, it, yeah. and which could help influence their their decisions. Yeah, and we're referencing the Homelessness Strategic Planning yeah. Project, which I highlighted at the beginning of the show. Uh, it's uh, working with the city of Detroit, working with community partners like mm -hmm. you guys and folks, creating a five-year strategic uh, system improvement plan to reduce homelessness in the city. Seems like an acknowledgement that maybe we're not operating as efficiently mm -hmm. as we need to, don't have the inf information mm -hmm. we need to. Let's try to get right on that. And hopefully that does work. But uh, Jordan, I do appreciate you highlighting that uh, issue. And we're going to continue to look at that here on Detroit Today as we move now to Cynthia in Detroit. Cynthia, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi, I just wanted to comment um, on the fact that I have a son who has schizophrenia and he was diagnosed at 18. And when we talk about this age group of 18 to 24, this is when these symptoms start creeping in and becoming a major uh, onset, you know, um, for my son, you know, he lives in the, he lived in the city of Detroit, but I moved him to Oakland County because the services were better. But I'm also, you know, listening to you guys saying these kids are aging out of the foster care system from 18 to 24. And it's a really crucial mental uh part of their life to be stable and then you add they don't have any place to live and i just worry that this will happen to, to them or they're out buying weed from the off the street and all these things can cause these symptoms to exacerbate and i just um yeah i don't even know what to do or how to help because I know my son, for me, is a full-time job. Yeah. I have to see him every day. I have to look in his eyes every day. I have to make sure he's getting his injection. Yeah. It is a lot of work to get him to stay stable. Yeah, Cynthia, and, and I just to jump in and make sure our, our guests have an opportunity to respond, I applaud you so much for putting in that work, right? Because what we see is the parents that don't are some of what will cause this issue to occur or exacerbate it. Shante, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to, to Cynthia based on your experience. 
So, yes, thank you so much for putting in that work. Um, and oftentimes what we see is that some parents lack the ability to know or recognize that those children are in those spaces and that they need those services. And again, with the resources not being readily available or that we don't know about them, I think it's important um, for us who are doing the work as well as parents like you to help spread that word because those are key ages where we need to make sure that these kids are receiving mental health services. And I know in the city of Detroit that there are not facilities that are there to house these youth. And if they lose health insurance coverage, that's another factor Mm -hmm. that, you know, what can lead to them having those housing instabilities and actually being homeless. And I think for us to come together and be able to maybe create a system, um, and I'm just throwing that out there, so where that we can all come together and we know each other and we know that we're out here doing the work, but we may be able to connect people to other resources that are out there. And I think that's important, especially for parents like you, to share those stories so that we know and that we can recognize it and that we can say, hey, like we have this hub here to help and support you. And I think that that would be amazing to support you and your son, as well as other people who are experiencing the same thing. Yeah. Now, Cynthia, thank you so much for highlighting this really important issue, something that we don't hear a lot about. And because folks don't talk about it, it can be more difficult to get the resources that we need to have the knowledge about these things so that we can help each other out with this information. And Cynthia, you helped us do a better job with that. So thank you again as we move right now to Bakia in Detroit. Bakia, go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Bakia, are you there? All right, we're going to put you back on hold. Keep listening. When you get an opportunity to jump back in, we'll try to get back to you uh, to continue on with the conversation. One message that we did receive from a caller who's not able to stay on is that uh, trans homelessness is very prevalent. The waiting list for housing, from a commenter in Royal Oak, says the waiting list for housing are two years long. And Courtney, I know that you do work in helping people get access to housing and things. Is this something that you've seen and and what recommendations or responses do you have to that concern? Yes, I mean, how the housing stock in Detroit is very limited. Um, And an organization that we partner with that's doing incredible work um, in that space is the Ruth Ellis Center, who is doing the work for advocacy and making sure um, that young people who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community have those resources and have the support that they need um, to be able to navigate some of those barriers. Yeah, if I could just jump in real quick, though, one, one of the things I want to make sure I understand, and unfortunately we don't have the caller here, is is the waiting list longer for you if you're trans? Because that would seem to be to be a violation of a protected class. But go ahead. Yep. So there are fair housing laws and mm-hmm. and, and I would hope, right, that right. our landlords and everything, I can't speak to right, that, right. but I can speak to generally um, there is a, a great waiting list. The housing stock is low and, and, and there is discrimination, right? Statistics show that um, trans folks are discriminated against in the housing space. Yeah. And that is very unfortunate. And, and that's very, why, very illegal, yes, by the and way. Very so illegal. Come across yes, that. yes. Make sure to elevate that to <laughs> yes. people. Uh, yeah, because you can't do that. But go ahead. Yes. And 
Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I do appreciate that point, and you jumping in there. Before we get back to calls, and again, you can join the show, 313-577-1019 to get in on this conversation, any questions you have. Before we get into calls and some more potential solutions, things that people who are listening can do to help out, I know that there is this event that is happening. A couple of you guys are taking part, and, and Megan, I'm going to give you the first crack at it. What do you have going on to highlight youth homelessness? What's happening? right now so what we're gearing up and preparing for is in the next 24 hours uh, we have uh, recruited nearly uh, about 150 folks from across the region to come and sleep out on our campus including the lieutenant governor including yes including the lieutenant governor that's really exciting and uh, what we're doing is raising awareness we have to raise the critical funds it is a fundraiser and that's a part of all (laughs) of what we do Um, but our sleep out is an experience and and what we're doing is it's it's a time for folks to come in and really stand in solidarity with our young folks. It's not about, you know, pretending to sleep out and then you get to go home the next day. It truly is a life changing experience where whether you sleep or you stay up all night like I do, um, really trying to come come together to bring some solutions to addressing homelessness. Yeah. So it is tomorrow. We're really excited. Fortunately, the weather um may comply or may not. Last year it snowed sideways and we, we stay out no matter what because uh-huh. young people experiencing homelessness don't get to choose. Right. So it's really about spending just a few minutes together or a night together um, to get a, just a tiny bit of what they're experiencing. Yeah, and before I jump to you, Courtney, Megan, for people who want to know more about that event that you are uh, throwing tomorrow mm-hmm. and want to get involved and participate, how can they do that? They can go to our website, uh, well, a website specifically for Sleep Out, which is sleepout.org. All right, that's mm-hmm. great. And Courtney, how about you? What you guys got going on? Yes, yeah, so we acknowledge National Runaway Prevention Month because one of the ways that you can end youth homelessness is to prevent it from happening and to be able to um, do all that we can to remove barriers that young people are facing. Um, so we are hosting a Black Friday youth brunch um, on Black Friday um, well, in, free, in free store giveaway. Um, so we're going to gather um, the young people and give away winter essentials, food, hygiene kits, and just really create a, a an opportunity for them to be able to experience joy and then to be able to meet their most basic needs during a time where coats, hats, scarves, gloves, bus tickets, food, all those things are essential um, just to their well-being. Yeah, yeah. No, that is really important also and glad to hear about that. And I don't want to leave leave you out of the mix, Shantae. I don't want you to think that I forgot about you here. So what you guys got going on? So we actually have Giving Tuesday, which is happening on November 28th, which is a fundraiser for our greatest needs. And again, to provide those essential needs that people need. Um, and ours is for families, um, which means we have children as well. But also, this is our biggest drive that we're going to have for the holidays to provide our families with items that they'll need for Christmas as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very good to know. Uh, I'm a solutions oriented guy. We've heard a lot about the problem. We've heard how it shows up. We've heard a little bit about how getting caught in this cycle can have detrimental effects for your outlook in life. But we all want to be part of the solution. So I'll start with you, Megan. What recommendation do you have? What can we do, listeners do right now, to help curtail this problem? I think, and, and this is, it's always a great opportunity to, to help reach the masses. I think, again, first of all, it's really understanding your perception on homelessness and what that looks like, because it literally could be anyone in your community that's someone that's helping you at a, at a store or whatever the case. So really understanding that a young person that experiencing homelessness 
it may not be a drug issue. It may not be an issue that they are not getting along with their parents. It literally could be a a generational issue or a host of others. So I think a part of it is just learning and really understanding a perspective um, of what homelessness can look like. The other thing I think that listeners um, can do is is do your due diligence, like looking into our organizations, helping us out. You know, there's volunteer opportunities. Donations are always incredibly helpful because, again, the, the cost to do this work has uh, increased significantly. So having, you know, more partners in that space is always helpful. But I would just ask everyone to, to, to dig in, to really learn and understand what these issues are. Yeah, Shante, I want to give you a shot at it, too. What do you what do you think people listening out there? What would you like to share with them about how to help? I think we actually have to educate ourselves on what this looks like. And like Megan said, that there is no face of homelessness and know that, you know, that person that you're sitting next to, that child that is in school with your child could be experiencing that and be open to understanding and also supporting. And I think that oftentimes, like we have knowledge or we have resources or skills that we can share and people will keep those things to themselves because they're not aware and they're not sure that these things are happening. But especially for those of us who have kids in the school system, looking at how they can help and support at that level is really key and important. And when it comes to tutoring, when it it is so expensive and these kids that have experienced chronically homelessness and gone from school to school and couch to couch, how they haven't been supported. And I think that those things are important in making sure that their educational needs are met so they're not making those same choices. So this is interesting. I appreciate that. You mentioned getting educated on the subject, but you also mentioned understanding that people that your kids are going to school with or what have you might be going through the same struggle. I would be concerned as a parent, maybe if I saw someone and I think, oh, they look a little disheveled or I'm concerned here. Like, am I now... Uh, saying that, or, or am, I, am I prejudiced in somebody because I'm like, oh, you look like you might be homeless. That could be a little bit of a difficult thing to think, oh, I should be helping out this person. I, I could see a, a parent concerned about that. It's a touchy subject to try to get in when you think you might need to intervene. So for someone would, who would have that concern, Courtney, do you have any ideas or recommendations? Um, I think I would take it back to ho- homelessness doesn't have a face, right? right? And so just because a young person looks disheveled, it doesn't necessarily mean right. that they are experiencing housing insecurity. But then it also, I think the key piece of this is centering our humanity, that that, that young person is a human being with feelings, with thoughts, right? And the best thing that you can do is listen. And I think once we decenter our own prejudices, once we decenter dis- those misconceptions and truly educate ourselves, it makes and creates space for our dignity and humanity. So I think what we need to be doing yeah. is listening to folks who have yeah. those lived experiences because it would bust some of yeah. those myths. Yeah, I appreciate it so much, all of you ladies, for joining us and being part of the conversation. Shante Hightower, Director of Children's Services at COTS, Courtney Smith, founder and CEO at the Detroit Phoenix Center, who we just heard from, and Megan Dunn, Executive Director at Detroit-based Covenant House of Michigan. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having us. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and me, Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Our assistant producer is Maddie Boyer. Our music is by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Podcast editing by David Lyons. And our program director is Adam Fox. Detroit Today is a production of WDET in Detroit. You can support the show by leaving a rating or a comment. Thanks for listening.